Here the Apostle Paul says in verse 26, I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. You may be seated. One of my, my, my heroes in the faith and uh, even I would say one of my mentors and one of my old pastors uh, passed away this week. Uh, you probably know him too. His name is Chuck Smith. He was the founder of Calvary Chapel, uh, 86 years old on a Wednesday. Uh, Chuck Smith went to be home with the Lord, and uh, I just thought I'd mention that because uh, Chuck Smith um, uh, baptized me, and he pastored me for uh, a period of about three years, and uh, he was very instrumental in my life, and I just want to give uh, credit where credit is due. You know, Chuck Smith was really an example of a pastor that labored hard in the Word of God. I mean, I personally don't know any other pastor uh, even in church history, I, I can't really, right now in my mind, I can't really even think of a pastor who's preached from Genesis to Revelation, oh, I don't know, maybe 10 times uh, through the entire Bible, uh, you know, and uh, just the way that God used that man, uh, church history will forever look back at the life of Chuck Smith as, uh, as one of the founders of a revival that, uh, one of the greatest revival in human history. Uh, you know, through the efforts of Chuck Smith, you know, uh, something like 30, 35,000 churches have been planted worldwide. Uh, and as much as wh whatever points of disagreement I may have with Chuck, those mean nothing right now in terms of my respect for, for him as a minister. Um, and uh, uh, knowing that he preached uh, to the very end, uh, he preached three services on Sunday and died on Wednesday. Uh, he, he went home with the Lord preaching, and uh, he was instrumental in the lives of so many untold thousands of people. And the one thing that I took away from Pastor Chuck Smith's ministry was his dedication to just verse-by-verse uh, verse exposition, just going through the Bible verse-by-verse, book-by-book, year-after-year, when um, a lot of other younger preachers are popping up and getting creative with the Word of God and doing different things. You know, Chuck just stuck to the old method of unfolding to us the authorial intent of a book. Who would ever thought that might be a good idea? But to know what did Paul really mean when he wrote Romans, when he wrote Ephesians, when Matthew wrote Matthew, what did they really think? You know, what was the author really thinking? And so in praise of Pastor Chuck, I just want to remember his memory and his legacy and I would be uh, pleased if God gave me half of the endurance of Pastor Chuck. I just remember year after year going out to the baptisms at Corona Del Mar, and there's Chuck in the cold ocean water, okay, with a wetsuit, okay, baptizing, you know, 300 people <laughs> all day long, you know, standing in the waters. And how many thousands of people did Chuck baptize throughout the course of his ministry. So we celebrate his memory and we give honor to his legacy. Let me pray and we will look at another man who also left a legacy. 
And that's the Apostle Paul. Let's pray one more time together for God's Word. Heavenly Father, again, we thank You so much that we have it, Lord, that the book is in our possession and that we have a sure guide in Your Word. We pray, Lord, as we look continually at the example of the Apostle Paul, his perseverance, his proven character, his example, his tireless sacrifice, that in our own lives, Lord, we would try to mirror his character, that we would adopt, Lord, the things that make for his maturity, Lord, in our own lives, that we would try to emulate Paul and all of those grace virtues that he exemplified so well and so consistently and so persistently, Lord, his faithfulness, his selflessness, Lord, his humility, his dependence on God, his faith. Lord, help us to be in accord with Hebrews 13, 7 that says, consider your leaders, those that taught the word of God to you. Consider their faith, consider their conduct and the outcome of their faith, Lord. We thank you for examples. We thank you for human examples, tangible examples like Chuck Smith, like the Apostle Paul, and all the great men and women of God that have ever gone before us that we might learn and glean and be taught by them. Give us a humble heart, Lord, as we look at the Apostle and his example to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this is a part two of a sermon entitled, The Powerful Weakness of the Apostle Paul. The Powerful Weakness of the Apostle Paul. So we really are just going down the list of Paul's sufferings, the litany of his labors and his sufferings, and the constant reminder that we have of the cost of discipleship for Paul. Uh, For Paul to follow Jesus cost him everything. For Paul to be a disciple of Christ meant that he had to pay a very, very high price in order to follow Jesus. He gave it all. He gave it his all, as he goes on to say there in 2 Corinthians 12. He was spent on behalf of the church. His life was an offering, according to Philippians chapter 2. His own life was like a sacrifice, like a, like a poured-out labor offering Uh, that he poured out on the service of the church. And that's really what he did. Now, when we look at the depth of his sacrifice and everything that is involved, the first section here in these two verses that we're looking at really deals, deals with all of the dangers that he underwent, the perils that he had to go through when he was amidst rivers, amidst robbers, as an outcast, finding no refuge either with Jews or with Gentiles, an alien in the world, as it were, having no refuge from anyone, not being able to fit in, as it were, with any culture. Culture, uh, being an outcast because of his identity with Christ D- didn't matter if he was in a different geographical location. It seemed like trials followed him wherever he went. The hazardous uh, nature of ministry is probably going to reach a climax as we go through the exposition in his reference to false brethren. I think the way the verse is constructed is meant to do that, to sort of show that the capstone of all the dangers was that which he found among false brethren. We'll take a look at that. And then chapter, or verse 27, the second section, dealing with the constant deprivation of his needs that Paul 
underwent, the constant toil, the constant weariness, the constant sacrifice, the ceaseless sacrifice of this man, the things that he suffered both involuntary and voluntarily, the things that he underwent. This is why I think when you crack Paul open, what you find is the mighty weakness of Paul, the powerful weakness of the apostle Paul as God's power, literally the only thing keeping him alive the power of God at work in him. Let's begin then in verse 26 by looking at his perilous journeys, because that's what he says, I have been on frequent journeys. And then probably all the other items on the list are meant to sort of modify that idea, that in the midst of his journeys, all of these subsequent things happened to Paul in the context of his frequent journeys, all the various dangers that he underwent. Isn't it amazing? Here's the Apostle Paul, and everywhere he went and everything that he did presented a threat. <laughs> Isn't that, what, what kind of ministry is that, right? Wherever you go, everywhere you go and everybody that you're with presents, number one, a threat, a danger, a hazard. And that's why I think Paul, when he comes to the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you want to look, but in, at the end of his life, here's Paul reflecting on a life of ministry, looking back now, and as he's getting ready to finish the race, what is the word highlighting the life of Paul as he's coming to the end of his race? He says, the Lord will rescue me, and he will, he will deliver me from every evil deed, and then watch this, and he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom, safe at last, but not until now. Not until he stands on the precipice of eternity is Paul talking about being safe, safe in the everlasting arms of his God. I think Paul looked at God's hand in his life the way that Jacob did when he came to the end of his life Genesis 48, he says, God, who has been my God and my shepherd my whole life. I love that. He looked at the, the, the grand scheme of everything he had gone through and see that God has been shepherding me my whole life. He's been my God. He's been my shepherd. He's been the one leading me and protecting me. So for Paul, safety was very rare in the ministry very rare. Ultimately, he was often made to feel as if only God was his only refuge. And as we look at all of the dangers present in the life of Paul, really it only serves to magnify one thing, and that is the power of God, the power of God at work in Paul. And that's why I say the powerful weakness of Paul, because it's not until we get a grasp of the great weakness of Paul that we also have to conclude there was an even greater power at work keeping Paul alive, preserving Paul, keeping Paul, keeping him safe. The Greco-Roman world was a very volatile place. Now, in the time of Paul, Rome had come uh, to what was known as the Pax Romana. It was a, pac a treaty, a peace treaty of sorts, where Rome had entered a state of peace where there was no wars, no conquest, and really much of the Roman world was protected if you were a citizen. You had right of passage, and you were able to travel However, the Pax Romana 
Even the Pax Romana in the ancient world had its limitations. For the Apostle Paul, he lived as a missionary. He oftentimes couldn't just travel the regular routes everybody else would take, but he would often be thrusted out to venture out into the wild, literally backpacking in just treacherous terrains and difficult passages. Look at the very first thing he mentions here. The dangers of his frequent journeys included dangers among rivers and robbers. Let's put those two together. Dangers of rivers and robbers. And the reason I join them together because they often went together. As a matter of fact, I mean just one journey, just one, uh, just one trip for Paul. When if you look at Acts chapter 13, verse 14, and then Acts chapter 14, verse 24, there you find a reference of Paul traveling from or between Perga to Pisidian Antioch and then on into Pamphylia. That route alone meant that Paul had to go into treacherous terrain, traveling in the Taurus mountain ranges, which was renowned for its dangers that lurked everywhere. It had rivers that were often impassable, no bridges, it wasn't like Paul was going on these, you know, these newly constructed bridges into safety on the other side. Oftentimes, he'd have to cross those rivers, and that would be perilous. Just remember, as we're talking about all that Paul underwent, there is no 911. There is no airlifting Paul out of the Taurus mountain range if he gets in trouble. You get stuck, that's it. You and your, you and your race right there. In the, in the wilderness, or what have you. Uh, the fact that he mentions robbers is a reference to the fact that in these Roman mountain ranges, oftentimes thieves would hide in them, in the mountains, and they would come out, and unsuspecting travelers would often be ambushed, and they would be overthrown by thieves, heavily armed thieves. Now, think for a minute here how treacherous and how perilous this would be for Paul as a missionary oftentimes carrying money that churches had given him and probably never being fully armed or adequately armed to defend himself. Maybe Paul, like Peter, had a sword. But what's one sword when you're being ambushed by 20 thieves, heavily armed thieves? Nothing, nothing. It was pure peril. Imagine traveling at night, which often he had to do. Imagine just traveling in areas that he wasn't familiar with and navigating without GPS. It was a treacherous, treacherous life. Not only that, moving on from there, he also mentions this, dangers from Jews and Gentiles. And you would think that at some level, Paul could find refuge among somebody, right? I mean, Paul, after all, was a Jew. Paul, after all, was a Roman citizen. And so to some degree, you would think that Paul would have been able to find refuge among his own countrymen, as he says. But there was no refuge among his own countrymen. As you know from the book of Acts, the Jews hated Paul for his defection away from Judaism and to Christianity. The Gentiles likewise despised Paul. But why? He was a Roman citizen. This only serves to highlight for us the fact that Paul's identity in Christ is the reason he suffered. If he was not identified with Christ, then he would have found refuge with the Jews. If he wasn't identified with Christ, then he could have easily found refuge with Romans. 
but because of his all-encompassing identity in Jesus Christ, he could find no abiding city, no refuge, and no safety. Uh, just one place, turn with me to Acts chapter 14, just a little taste of what he's gone through here, okay? Just a little taste of what he's gone through here. Here, Jew and Gentile come together to conspire to kill both Paul and Barnabas. It says in a, uh, verse 1, in Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and they spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent, all, uh, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. And that is how he got through everything who was testifying to the word of, of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the, Jew, the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them. Isn't that remarkable? No refuge, no abiding city, no identifying with anybody else that might help you there. You ever feel like that? I thought for us, okay, maybe none of you came in here today with a story like this. Hey, let me tell you about when the Jews and Gentiles got together and dragged and wanted to stone me. <laughs> but have you ever felt like an alien in your own family? Have you ever felt like there was no refuge among old friends, old acquaintances, maybe at work or in the culture? We all sense that. And I tell you, the more, like Paul, you identify with Christ, probably the more alienated you're going to be from your family, your friends, the culture, even the church in some places. Next, moving away from who he was around to where he went, he says he was in danger of, let's lump these together, sort of a triplet here of a grouping here, danger of city danger in the wilderness, and danger in the sea. No matter which way Paul tried to go, he was in danger, constant danger. And Paul was in danger in every geographical location that you can think of. If he jumped on a boat and tried to avoid society, he was in danger. No matter where he went, constant threat, constant danger, constant hazards. John MacArthur gives a little partial list of all the cities where Paul faced vigor, different dangers. MacArthur says he faced dangers in virtually every city that he had visited, including Damascus, Jerusalem, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, and Ephesus. And I throw in, end of the quote, end of the quote, and then I would throw in Rome. Because it was also in Rome that Paul found hostility and ultimately martyrdom. Martyrdom. And that is why, regardless of where he went, if he was in the city, there was dangers. If he was in the wilderness, there was dangers. I mean, just think of the dangers in the wilderness. I don't know about you, but um, one of my greatest enemies of all time is the deadly mosquito. Uh, I cannot go camping with you. 
at least not without a really strong dose of DEET or whatever they, whatever. I, they just love to feast on my skin. What if Paul was like that? Imagine that. He has no, he has nothing to ward off malaria-infected diseases or insects that could easily give him that disease. As a matter of fact, there are some scholars that have concluded that Paul probably did have malaria, and that's how he was ultimately limited in his eyesight. We don't know. But think about it. He was definitely in danger from poisonous snakes. He was in danger from insects like spiders and uh, uh, mosquitoes. And when I was in Africa, they had one-inch ants. Ants that were one inch long that if they bit you, they would break their head off in your skin. Their body would break off. They would plant their head in your skin and you would get sick. That's the kind of danger Paul was probably around. Let alone lions, tigers, and bears. Oh, my. <laughs> there were lions in those mountain ranges, and they were bears. This is not a fairy tale. It's true. This is not the Wizard of Oz. It's true. There were also, uh, Rome was also known for their, their wild dogs that would roam around in packs and could easily devour a person that had, couldn't protect themselves from a wild pack of dogs. Think about that. Wolves, coyotes, mountain lions, just the danger. I, I, you know, I tell you something. When you get home, if you have a Bible atlas, jump online, look at some of the pictures, the mountain ranges just in Galatia. Because I think sometimes we think, when we think of Paul traveling, we think, you know, he's on a highway, maybe he's, you know, he's in a, he's in a, 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 a carriage or something, horseback, and it's real nice. And, you know, you look at some of the mountain ranges in Galatia, okay, modern-day Turkey and areas of Asia Minor, I mean, it's perilous. I, even today, with everything that we have today, I wouldn't want to go venturing out in those places, you know? Everything Paul underwent on his missionary journeys, he did because of his calling. That's what he was called to do. He was called to suffer on behalf of Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, he was continually filling up the amount of suffering that God had determined for him. He suffered at sea. Just think of the shipwrecks that he's already talked about. The shipwreck in Acts chapter 27 where everybody was thrown overboard and they had to wash up on the shore there at Malta. I mean, just amazing things that Paul had to undergo. No matter where he went, no matter what he did, it seemed like Paul was constantly buffeted, beaten, downcast, thrown out, alienated. He was injured. He was sick and he was cold, and he was exposed to the elements. I mean, this is not really a glorified vision of ministry, is it? You won't find it in any modern ministry manual. Expect the ministry to be like this. <laughs> but you might find some of these things in missionary manuals, where they will prepare you to suffer at such extreme conditions. Now turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, because earlier Paul had to remind the church that the nature of his sufferings was part of his calling. The church, 1 Corinthians, Church of Corinth, had an over-realized and an over-triumphant view of their, of their eschatology. They were speaking about already an overheated reigning with Christ, an over-realized uh, sort of church triumphant 
when the church was really in a state of militancy, they were talking as if they were in a church in a state of triumphancy, which on a spiritual level, of course, is true. But they had apparently, according to Paul, taken it too far. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8. He says, you are already filled. You are already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. See, this is the view that they had. For I think, and this is the contrast, this is sort of a sarcastic way of Paul putting it here. For I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this very present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, and homeless. We toil, working with our own hands, and when we are reviled, we bless, and when we are persecuted, we endure, and when we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. This is Paul's assessment of his apostolic ministry. When he says the dreg of all things, that literally means that which is at the bottom of a trash can and that you scrape off. That's what the world look that's how the world views us. That's our status in this present evil age. Just staggering, amazing. And then look at the look at the last thing here. He says in verse 20, 26, he says, also in danger of false brethren. Now, he leaves this item by itself, which most exegetes have concluded he did that in order to emphasize just how volatile this was, just how particularly vexing it would have been for Paul to encounter false brethren. Why? Because of anywhere in a, among anyone that he, would have, he should have found refuge, you would think it would be among the brethren. But then the brethren themselves pose a danger. It's called false brethren. You know, Paul was very careful who he allowed into his inner core. He surrounded it himself only with the most like-minded like ministers that he could. And that's why I can only point to a couple. Barnabas. Timothy, Titus. But outside of that, you know, Paul didn't have this gigantic entourage. Paul had a select few group of men that he really truly trusted. And even then, if Jesus was betrayed by one of his inner circle friends, that's what he tells Judas, right? Why have you come, friend? Demas... One of Paul's closest associates, apparently. And this is a mature Paul. This is Paul after years of ministry. Certainly Paul had discernment. Certainly Paul, you didn't have to remind Paul of the qualifications of an elder. He wrote them. Don't you think Paul had discernment when he decided to take Demas on into his group? Sure he had discernment, but nobody has x-ray vision. Spiritually speaking, he couldn't see into the soul of Demas and, and see a false convert, a false brethren. Sometime the sins of some will come out later. 
And for the Apostle Paul, I think it was particularly vexing that he should encounter such hostility at the hands of his own so-called brothers. But he knew that this was the way it was. Acts chapter 20, verse 23, Paul says, The Holy Spirit, God Himself, solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Hey, it's one thing when a Christian comes up to you and tells you, Hey, I... I, you know, I'm not feeling good about your minister. This, I'm not feeling good about that mission trip you're about to go on. It's another thing when God himself assures you that it's not going to go well. And you still go. You see why this man is just unstoppable? Because he goes on to say there in Acts chapter 20, I don't consider my life dear to myself. I don't count it dear to myself. If I die, I die. And today, people will tell you, oh, careful, pastor, don't go talking like that. You get in trouble. You get parents calling you and you're stirring their kids up for missions. Go laying down their life. You'll have, you know, people banging down your door. Tell that to the Apostle Paul, who saw death as gain and life, a life of suffering, Christ. Christ. These false brethren, however, were very, I think, particularly hurtful to Paul. And when you look at the term false brethren, you find two things, that it's applied to, yes, false converts, but even more, heretics. Galatians chapter 2 verse 4 is the only other place that this Greek word, pseudodelphos, is found. And pseudodelphos is the word, it's a compound word, pseudo, false, adelphoi, brethren, and he mixes the two together, false brethren. The false brethren in Galatia, chapter 2, verse 4, listen to this. It, uh, it speaks to the infiltration of the false brethren. It says, but it was because of false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ in order to bring us into bondage. And that obviously a reference to the legalism that the Judaizers were trying to foist on the Galatians there. And Paul, as he goes on to say, he didn't yield to them for a moment. So for Paul, regardless of where he was or who he was with, ministry always contained peril. Peril. And that's why I'm so eager to know, how did he do it? How did he overcome it? For my own life, for your own life, for whatever trial you're going to face, for whatever hardship or persecution or danger or, or whatever sneers and looks and comments you're going to get from your family. How does Paul overcome this? What's his secret? Well, we'll get to that. I can't give that away now or else I'll lose interest. So I've got to build the suspense to keep you. Look at the second thing. Not only the dangers, the perilous dangers of Paul's travels, but also his constant deprivation. Verse 27, I have been in labor and hardship. Another introductory phrase, by the way, because the rest is sort of a fleshing out of those terms. Labor and hardship. And then this is explanatory. Through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And so these are the things that Paul was deprived of, was deprived of. His labors, as he goes on to say, were more numerous than the false teachers. That's what he talks about there in, in verse uh, 
earlier in chapter 11 when he's reflecting on the false teachers, their claims. It leads me to this conclusion. Exceptional and extraordinary toil comes with extraordinary trial. And that is true almost every single, uh, every single time, 100% of the case. That is, that is almost always true, always true of God's ministers. The following, therefore, is, 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 a, is a list, and it's still part of his external hardships. If you look at verse 28, which, Lord willing, we'll look at next week, verse 28 is going to take us in a different direction. That's going to internalize the hardships of Paul, from external hardships, from things like whippings and stonings and starvings, to internal, psychological, emotional, spiritual hardships that Paul underwent in the ministry. And let's go down the list here quickly. Sleep. I don't know about you, but I like my sleep. And when, I, when you, you deprive me of my sleep, or I'm deprived of my sleep, I am not the most spirit-filled Christian you'll ever meet. Okay? But Paul says he was constantly in, without sleep. He was constantly having to sacrifice his sleep. Sleepless nights all the time. And I'd venture to say, what caused the sleepless nights? Probably a lot of problems in the churches. His heartache, his anguish, his concern, as we're going to go on to find out. His toil. He was dedicated to preaching and teaching, laboring hard. Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 through 29. That was the sum of his ministry. A hard-working farmer, as he says, laboring in the Word of God, preaching, teaching, studying, praying, fasting even, as we're going to go on to find out. This was a godly minister of God, and that's why God set him up so that we might emulate him in future ministries. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, we can see how both sleeplessness and hard labor go together. It was oftentimes because Paul's ministry model in many churches where he refused to take money, he would rather work really hard with his hands even at the expense of sleep. He says, for you recall, brethren, our labor our, and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim the gospel of God. So working really hard and losing sleep because of it. 2 Thessalonians 3.8, much the same thing. 2 Thessalonians 3.8, he says, Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. And he goes on to say, look, he provided not only for his needs, but Paul also provided for the needs of his companions. This was, this was some man. He's made out of some kind of strange metal. Now, food and water, another precious and basic necessity of life. He said that he would go without food and water, deprived of food and water. I've been hungry, but I tell you the truth, I don't remember being frighteningly thirsty, right? Seems like I always have water no matter what. Uh, but he says there are times where it was a peril to be without water. Where's the next drop of water going to come from as he's maybe traveling through Arabia or going through one of the mountain regions in Asia Minor? 
You know, Jonathan Edwards, maybe to take this more in a voluntary way, that could be an involuntary affliction, but maybe a voluntary affliction and maybe setting up the next term, okay? But I'm reminded that Jonathan Edwards, in a biography I read on Edwards, Edwards was known to operate on minimal food and, and, and minimal uh, uh, sustenance for, the purpose of the, for this one purpose, so that his senses would remain at a heightened level. You know when you kind of fast, have you, have you ever, don't raise your hand, have you ever fasted? Okay, you're not supposed to right, parade that around. <laughs> but just to be honest, with you, have you ever fasted? You ever, you ever feel that at that point, at that fast, maybe the third or fourth day, and you start feeling that you're, you're really alert because you're starving? <laughs> and that's what Edwards would do. He would keep himself in a constant state of hunger so that his, his, his mental faculty was always sharp. He would do that on purpose. He says, sometimes I just have an apple for the day. And um, wow, just amazing. How many times did Paul do that? Voluntarily forego his food. And now look at the next term. Because here it says, without water. But the Greek word, nistea, could easily be translated fasting. Now, me personally, I think that's probably the better rendering because... If he just says, without food, he's almost in a redundant fashion restating what he just said. Hunger, without food. I mean, he's already covered that. So maybe one of these is meant to be voluntary, like fasting. We know from Acts chapter 14 that Paul did fast, verse 23. Upon major decisions, fasting was often involved. And we don't know what other reasons, what are the cases, what are the purpose there was for Paul in fasting, personal, spiritual, holiness, sanctification, maybe fasting on behalf of a sick person, maybe fasting because of some significant decision that was about to be made in a particular church or a whole group of churches. We just don't know, but that for Paul, both involuntary and voluntary deprivation of food was involved. And then last of all, cold and exposure. If things could not get any more extreme, I know we're probably just sitting here thinking, wow, we're just pummeling this poor guy, okay? The final set of terms leaves us with a picture of Paul that you would think he's out in the dark somewhere, perhaps in the wilderness, perhaps outside of Lystra somewhere, when he was mobbed by a, a, a group of people that were persecuting him. They left him for dead, dragged him out of the city, beat him, left him for dead, and you know, when a violent mob, I don't know if you've ever seen a violent mob attack somebody. I have. When a violent mob, maybe in a, in a, in a Muslim country, or that, that, that type of thing happens very frequently, they often tear people's clothes off. It's just the, 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 the mob mentality, just the crazy. And the, he's dragged out of the whole city, beaten and left for dead. And then he gets up because he was healed through the prayers of the saints, and he goes right back into the city to preach again. He's either really hard-headed or really called, one of the two. But this is what Paul did. This is how he worked. This is how he persisted and persevered in the ministry. Cold. How many nights did he spend out in those mountain ranges in the snow? Because it snowed. There was rain. There was cold. There was freezing temperatures. And how many times did Paul just not have enough clothing to make it through the night? Uh, one of the very few places where Paul actually makes a personal request is at the end of his life. 
2 Timothy chapter 4, you remember he makes this short little terse request for his own needs. And what does he say? He tells Timothy, when you come, bring the cloak. In other words, bring me the jacket. Bring me the little blanket that I need, okay? He says that I left at Troas. And then he goes on to make this little request. Make every effort to come before winter. Winter in a Roman prison or a Roman dungeon or traveling around the winter, uh, the Roman world was extremely harsh. Who can tell of how harsh it was? Historians have pointed this out, that Roman prisoners would often be thrown into their cells, deprived of food, deprived of clothing, oftentimes exposed to terrible, uh, inhumane conditions where they would get sick, ill, and die because of their diseases. And so now let me answer the question, or try to at least, how? How is it possible that this man can do all of these things, still live, that's one, and then serve with a sanctified perspective of his trials and of his future and of his ministry and still have joy when he's writing to the Philippians about suffering and suffering with joy as he's writing from being in a Roman prison at that moment in time. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. I want to give you two reasons why I think are two ways in which Paul survived all of this. One has to do with sanctification, and the other one has to do with justification. First, justification. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, he gives you and I a great clue. He says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have received, you have, excuse me, you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. In other words, the church had revived their affections for Paul to the degree that they were willing to help him now, bring him aid. Who knows? Bring him food. Who knows? Bring him money while he's in prison. But not that I speak from want. What? I would want something. <laughs> I would speak from want, I think. He says, I don't speak from want, for I have learned. This is a very interesting word. I have learned to be content in whatever uh, circumstances that I am in. Uh, the word there, learned, literally means that he had mastered the mystery, mastered the art. And if you have Jeremiah Burroughs' book on contentment, he gives an exposition of this passage right here in how we can learn to be, but it's called, it's mastering an art. It doesn't come naturally. It's very foreign to us. We need to learn a technique. Yes, we need to engage in hard work, and we need to, we need to uh, apply ourselves to mastering the art of contentment, or we will never have it. Our flesh is too strong. Sin too powerful, the world too enticing. We need to master the art, the mystery of contentment. He says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. 
That's a word that connects us back to the context of Corinthians. Both of having abundance and suffering need again. Verse 13 comes in, I think, as the recipe for or the remedy for all of these things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A word that has been grossly ripped out of context and used for almost every application under the sun. What Paul's thought process is, is this. Because of my union with Christ, that's why I said justification, because of my union with Christ, because of my, 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 my reliance on Christ, because I am with Him, I can overcome all things. I can do all things. If Christ asked me to sit in a jail cell for two or three years, I would do it with contentment because I am in Him. I am in Him. The second, the second factor, the second key or clue I'm going to give us has to do with the sanctification. Paul, just like Paul's contentment flowed out of his union with Christ, so also his contentment flowed from his understanding of the sanctifying power of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. That's the next text. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. He says, And he has said to me, the Lord Jesus, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content. There's that connection again. How did he learn this content? How did he achieve contentment in the midst and in the context of such unthinkable suffering? I am content with weakness, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties. For Christ's sake, he says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the only way you can talk about self-esteem in the Christian life is because of Christ. His power, His strength, His work in you, His protection. That's why, and no other reason. It's a complete and total abandonment to the grace of God, completely resigning yourself to the sovereignty of God in your life. We often look to the, to, we look for different words to try to describe Paul in all of this. Paul's life and his theology, and at times it's better, I think, to just let the commentary stay silent and let Paul describe his own life. Let Paul tell us how he did things, and that's what I want to do here as we close. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, because Paul's own words are often the best exegesis of his life. He explains how and why he does things best. Time and again, Paul proved that he practiced what he preached, for in all of these things he saw himself as more than a conqueror. You know where I'm going with this. Romans 8, 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, will distress, will persecution or famine or nakedness or peril, his whole Ministry we just looked at right now could be summarized as peril or sword, death. 
just as it is written. For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, he didn't say, hopefully, if we try to avoid these things, hopefully, if we can come up with a plan where we don't have to suffer these kind of things, that's not what he says. He says, in, in relationship to these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. We don't get by, we conquer. You don't use the word conquer to describe getting by in the Christian life. We make it somehow, we'll figure it out. No, do you see yourself as a conqueror in the midst of your trials? That's Christian perseverance. That's Christian perseverance. You're not just getting by, believer. You are overwhelmingly conquering over your trials. So, Paul says, we conquer through Him who loved us. Loved us. It's all the gospel. Verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. How many times do we fear things to come, the unseen future, nor powers, neither political powers, spiritual powers, military powers, any of those things, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, that's the key, because they are created things, that means they are transient, that means they are temporal, and that means the threat of those things will end. He says, we, he says, we'll be able, will not be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How did Paul do it? This is how he did it. Paul is his own interpreter. But more importantly, God is his own interpreter, as we sing. Great, mysterious things God has done. God is his own interpreter. He will make his word plain. And how will you persevere? The Word tells us it's by being in Christ and it's by seeing the power of the, sanct the sanctifying power of Christ in the midst of your trial. Not outside of your trials, in the midst of the trial. That's when God reminds us that we are overwhelmingly conquering through Christ our Lord. Father, Lord, it's so easy to lose sight of our status Recognizing and realizing that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17, that you lead us constantly in triumphal procession. That you are leading us in triumph. And this is what triumph looks like. Suffering by totally depending on you. And so Lord, please teach us the mystery. Give us the Give us the ability to master the art like Paul, to be content in whatever circumstance that we are in. Help us, Lord, not to suffer for our own foolishness, for our own sin, because then that would be no glory to us. But when we suffer according to the will of God, knowing that your hand will lead us and protect us and sustain us in the midst of that. Help us always, therefore, to put our trust in you, to hope in you, 
and to look to you as a faithful creator who will not let us down ever, 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 ever. In Jesus' name, amen.